right there. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 1. Our new schedule just helps families with young kids and dads who have to get up early in the morning and moms as well, uh, not to be tired out tomorrow. Judges chapter 1, put your finger there, I'll eventually get there. You know that familiar blaring, screeching sound effect that precedes an announcement from the emergency broadcasting system, right? This is how it goes if you've forgotten. Hold on, the best part's coming. Isn't it lovely? Thank you. Yeah, oh, that's the best part. I stopped it right there. That's all right. Don't play it when I'm speaking, though. <laughs> Not the prettiest nor the most attractive sound, but it's meant, what, to get your attention. It has some important message for you. A warning to convey could save your life, the lives of those around you. As we begin a new study in the Old Testament here, it won't take you very long to discover that the book of Judges is not a pleasant book per se. The book of Joshua, which we just finished, uh, with few exceptions, is really an encouragement. It talks about the conquest and the victory, uh, victory after victory for God's people who really simply trust him, simply obey his word, and bring about profound blessing. God will act on the behalf of those who put their trust in him, to those who evidence their love for him by keeping his commands. Everybody likes to say very glibly at times, oh, I love God and I know God. And John, especially inspired by the Holy Spirit, will say, oh, really? Well, let us check out your life and let us uh, see how much you really love God by your fervor to keep his commands. This is the measure of one's love for Christ is your ability or your willingness to do his will. And so the book of Joshua really is an encouragement about conquering the land that God has given, dividing it up and accepting your inheritance and possessing that and we saw that happen, and for the most part, it's done. But Joshua, in many passages, said that there is still much land, pockets of resistors, Canaanites, that will dwell in the land that need to be subdued. Thus, the book of Judges, the sequel, the 400-year sad, pathetic sequel that covers from the death of Joshua, now Joshua's just died, and now the book of Judges will cover a period of 400 years all the way to the rise of the monarchy with Saul, King David, and King Solomon. 
In fact, Samuel will be the last of the 15 judges that we hear about, and Samuel is the presumed author uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to compile the records and complete the narrative under the guidance, of course, as I said, of the Holy Spirit. And it's a sad and dark time in Israel's uh, history. Uh, the key verse for Judges, before we, we get started, uh, chapter 17, verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's a very famous verse. I hear some of you uh, helping me finish it. Uh, the self-directed life is never a blessed life, believer or not. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man or to a woman but in the end, that way leads to death. Another famous scriptures, Proverbs 14, verse 12. And so it says, characterizes a 400-year period by folks doing whatever they wanted to. Um, when you ask them, well, are you sinning now? They would say, well, what, how do you define sin? And what you call sin, uh, I don't. And so it was, a, it was a time where they threw away or discarded the word of God and did what they wanted to do, and which led to humiliating defeats, a really sickening debasement, uh, degrading of their bodies with one another, the, the degrading of their minds and moral depravity uh, and perversion by the pagan neighbors that surrounded them. The, and really, a monotonous sin cycle, which is infamous to the book of Judges. And here's how it goes. Uh, you'll see it repeated seven times in these chapters. Things are going well. God is blessed. And then they're lulled into... Uh, pride and feeling like they don't need God anymore because they're so blessed and so able and so cute on top of everything else. And, and then what happens is, is that God, uh, they rebel and they compromise and they disobey. And then that brings God's sharp chastisement in the form of their enemy prevailing against them. Then they cry out. They repent, and God says, good to hear from you. Oh, you're checking in. That is so nice, and uh, oh, you found out that your way is a dead-end street, and now you need me. That's good. This is good. Let's keep talking, and so he answers by raising up a spirit-led and empowered judge, the word in Hebrew, where we get the name of the book, Shaphat in Hebrew, it means judge literally, but not in the legal sense. It really means a deliverer, a savior, a rescuer. And so in this cycle, when they cry out to God, the enemies have got them in a chokehold. They cry out, they repent, they seek the Lord, and God, faithful that he is, sends them a judge the Holy Spirit enables that judge, that deliverer, to um, deliver them and rescue them. And then things get better, and they're blessed, 
And then they start thinking, oh, who needs the Lord? Who needs to read the Bible anymore? Our enemies are taken care of. We're blessed. We've got money in the bank. We're okay now. Look at how far we've come. Let's just sin a little bit. Let's do things our way. And then the chastisement, and then the crying out, and then God fixes it, and then they get lulled into, you get the whole picture. That just goes on and on and on. This is Christianity for some, a crisis Christianity, a Christianity that goes on one big merry-go-round. It's 180 degrees from God's will in Christ Jesus for us. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, the Lord says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full, this abundant life overflowing with victory. Let me say this. Jesus did not endure the cross for that kind of pathetic sin cycle to be dominating your life. He did not invest himself in the, in, by shedding his own blood for you so that you could live a defeated life. There's no way. That's kind of the choice that we have. Now, judges will bring some invaluable truths, really, how to break that vicious cycle, because it's a cycle if every Christian in this room were honest, would say, yeah, I know that cycle very, very well. I do, and I'm sure you do. The book of Judges will show us how easy it is to just break that cycle by learning vicariously, by watching what happens. And the motivation, the inspiration from reading the book of Judges will be this. You will say, dear God in heaven, may that never happen to me. If you're wise, you'll let them take the blows for you so that you don't have to repeat the error of their ways and suffer that way. Saved people can live one ugly, messed up existence depending on their responses to God's revealed truths. What, one more thing I'd like to note here, that judges in our English Bibles is classified in the historical category of scriptures. In other words, it's lumped together with history. In the Jewish Bible, it is listed in the prophetic section. Why is that? Because the Jewish historians led by the Holy Spirit were thinking, yes, history and accurate history is important, but the truths that judges in that historic period teach is the point of the book. So they put it in prophetic literature of the scriptures because of the truth that it teaches. Those who cannot learn from history, it is said, are uh, doomed to repeat it. Those who do not remember their past are condemned to repeat their mistakes. And that's why the book ends up in the category of prophetic scriptures. And so amidst the stark warnings and Israel's pathetic backsliding, there are some wonderful stories we're going to look forward to. Deborah, woman of God, uh, Gideon, Samson, and um, also 
It is God who said he will never leave us or forsake us in Hebrews 13, 5. And you will see that quite clearly. God has made a promise to these people uh, in the good times and the bad. And, you know, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What, what that means is he doesn't have any other way to be with you. He can't deny who he is. Just because you're not faithful, it doesn't change how faithful he is. And we will see how faithful he is. And, and it's very awe-inspiring for our own lives. So chapter 1 really is a foundation for all of their spiritual failure that's going to come in the rest of the book. Here's where it went downhill, and it's called two words, incomplete obedience. So chapter 1, let's begin our 21-chapter, 400-year journey on, miserial, on, miserial, on Israel's merry-go-round. 1 through 7. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? See, they're still in the land. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given them, I've given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go up with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai, Adonai, Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adani Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. I'm glad Halloween is coming, because that was a fitting little scene there. Verse 7, then Adonai, I want to say Adonai, that's the problem, but it comes from the word, it means Lord. Let's call him Lord Bezek, which is what it means, and his name means lightning. So Lord Lightning said... Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Okay, number one, a good start. And that's how journeys usually go, but it's the finishing part that matters. A woman said to me once, you know what I used to be? a born-again Christian. And I said, you picked the wrong half of your life to used to be. You should not end faithless. But it's hard to end well. Joshua's gone. That's not going to help matters. As your opening verse says, he is in heaven now, and they don't transition very well. Um, God gives wonderful human leaders uh, to his work on this earth, and it's always difficult for God's people when those human beings um, pass from the scene. In such a situation as this, uh, we may live in the past wishing that leader were still with us. Uh, be careful 
how much of getting too wrapped up in one personality because our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Joshua's gone. The next 400 years, there's really not one leader. They lack a leader. Proverbs 29, 18 in the King James says, where there's no vision, the people perish. There's no president. There's no prime minister. There's no king. They only have the Lord, which really God's idea was that would be enough. Um, but more likely, why do they not have a leader? It may be because the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22:30, maybe the Lord couldn't find anybody like Joshua or Moses. Can you believe that? For 400 years, listen to what Ezekiel, how he put it. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. I believe that the Lord could not find one man to lead these people who was just more concerned with God and his will uh, than his own life. That's amazing to me. But they didn't have a leader, so, and, but they had a lot of unfinished business. Joshua 13, 16, 17, 18, all hints that the campaign to possess this promised land was a protracted one, meaning it would be extended and drawn out. They owned the land, but they didn't possess the land. Therefore, they could not enjoy it. It was up to these 12 states. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel as 12 independent states, like our states of the Union, but only 12. And each of those 12 uh, had the ability to govern themselves, but they had a common um, constitution, which would be the law given through Moses. And they had a central form of worship there with the temple or the tabernacle. But they could govern. But their job, given and commissioned by Joshua, was that each of those states had to work against the pocket of resisting uh, pagan neighbors, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. They had to deal with them in the same way it all started back with Joshua. But here's where the problem lie. They did not fully dislodge these entrenched enemies of the Lord. And so they start, well, they say, WWJD, what would Joshua do? He would seek the Lord. And so uh, they seek the Lord. Who shall go up? Who's going to lead us against these Canaanites in the next battle? And maybe through the high priest or through the umim or the thummim, uh, they get an answer. And the answer is Judah, the tribe, the state called Judah. And he says, by the way, it's a done deal. I've already rigged this battle in your favor. Go into the battle. P.S. Verse 2, you win. All right? Um, so Judah invites Simeon, the state of Simeon, to join in this battle. Uh, Judah and Simeon are brothers of the same mother and father, Leah and Jacob, so that they are very close. And so one of them says to the other state, hey, come and help us do this, and then we'll help you uh, settle your land as well. 
So God's word comes to pass, as you see, the effort meets with success. 10,000 wicked soldiers perish. And here's the interesting note about Lord Lightning. The ancient military strategy, barbaric as it was, was to disable the warriors instead of killing them. They would humiliate them. No thumbs, you can't handle a sword anymore. Off with the big toes, you can't run or take a stand. And apparently, Mr. Lightning Bolt gets what he had coming. Galatians 6 and verse 7, a man will reap what a man has sown. From his own lips, he says, been here, done this, because the Jews capture him, and they employ the current, uh, the contemporary uh, method of that day to disable him. And so they let him live, but they disable him in the way that we've mentioned here. And what does he say? He says, you know what? <laughs> I did this to 70 guys. And they were my servants. I had them around in my palace. And you know what? They ate from my table the leftovers. And now God has paid me back. Who told him that? Did the Jews say, hey, brother, God is paying you back? No, the, even the unsaved soul, when God brings justice to that person, they say, oh, I get it, I get this. In, in essence, I deserve this. God is dealing with me as I dealt with 70 others. He may be exaggerating with the 70, but he knows that he deserves what happened to him. On Judgment Day, the great white throne where heaven and sky flees away and there's great and small standing before the throne of God and no place is found for them. I don't picture a scream fest going on. I do not. I do not picture tongues flailing at the Lord as they stand before his throne. I do not picture them with the finger. I do not picture Z snapping the Lord. I don't, I, I don't think that's gonna happen. I think they are going to realize this is what I deserve. Profound, overwhelming, horrible acceptance of the wonderful, perfect, terrible justice of God being executed. Here's Warren uh, Wiersbe's little comment here. Those 70 kings illustrate the sad plight of anybody who's given in to the enemy. They could walk, they could not walk or run correctly. Their ability to stand is compromised. They couldn't use a sword effectively. They were humiliated instead of honored and they were living on leftovers instead of feasting at the table. What a difference it makes when you live by faith, obey God, and reign in life through Jesus Christ. Verse 8 through 15. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put, they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, 
and defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Taimai. Yeah. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter, Aksa, in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter, Aksa, to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. So Roman numeral number two, ask and you shall receive. A, a little interesting interchange between a daughter and her father that speaks volumes. But first you find out, and we've got a map coming up here, the fact that Jerusalem is taken and is now under the control of the Israelis, but not for long. It never really will be for 3,500 years, a total of 5,000 years of occupation in that one city. To this day, the green, the forest green, is the West Bank. Jerusalem is in the West Bank there. And so it is disputed land. And also the Golan Heights to the north and also the Gaza Strip, which Israel does not control either. The parameters given in the scriptures cover a larger portion than they even have there. But all the green areas are biblically given to the Jews. They still do not have it. 3,400 years from this date is today. And it's still occupied, not by Jews, not controlled fully 100%. Thank you for that. But the true Joshua will finish the task. And when he comes, Jerusalem really will be the hosting city of the new world order that Jesus Christ will bring. And so... Continuing on, verse 12, Caleb's on the scene. He's wearing the t-shirt that says, old guys rule, because he is old, but he is faithful, and God is using him. And so he appears again. He says, hey, I've got a great idea. You, you all know how beautiful my daughter is. She must have been quite a gal to offer her in marriage, and a guy would risk his life to capture a city, to take down a city. For marriage of this woman, she must have been a Proverbs 31 kind of gal. And so um, Othniel, his nephew, wins the prize because faith, I guess, and courage runs in families as does cowardice and unbelief. But Caleb's nephew wins the prize and so he marries his cousin. Ew. <laughs> But they still, they, they, they never got closer than that in the ancient days, thankfully. In fact, there are laws on Moses' books against incest. But cousins was not considered incest back in the day. 
Now notice the elevation of women's status here in the kingdom of God. Really, these women who are honored, Deborah and Jael, who you'll hear about, and this woman as well, Aksa. Now, apparently, her husband, Othniel, he's a courageous guy. He's good at taking down a city, but he has a problem asking dad for something that they need. They got the land. He said, you can have this land, but you can't have a land in the desert without flowing living water. And so he can't find the humility to ask dad for something that he needs. And this is when the woman has to rise to the occasion and say, could you just swallow your pride? Instead, she comes humbly on a donkey, and this beautiful thing that, that Charles Spurgeon has developed an entire beautiful message called Oxes Asking a Pattern of Prayer. And so here's a quote from that sermon. Oxa thought about what she wanted before she went to her father. Before you pray, know what you need before God. She came to God with a very definite request that had been considered beforehand. Think what you're going to ask before you begin to pray, and then pray like a business person. This woman does not say to her father, Father, listen to me, and then utter some pretty little oration about nothing. But she knows what she is going to ask for and why she is going to ask for it, and she receives it. She knows where to go when she needs something. She goes humbly and eagerly, and the father is willing. Listen to the dad who's representing God, really, in a spiritual application, if you want to look at it that way. What can I do for you? Jesus, Matthew 20 verse 36, to blind beggars. What would you like me to do for you? He will always ask you and me, and he's asking you tonight, what would you like me to do for you? What would you like me, the Lord, to do for you? What would you like me to do for you. Figure that out and ask in faith. She did. And she said, I've got this land. Thank you very much. You're the one who gave it to me. I'm grateful for that. But, you know, we need springs of living water. We need the flow. We need the life, you know. And so she gets it. And Othniel is thinking, you know, I won the city, I fought for the land, I can dig the wells myself. And that's why men have a bigger struggle at humbling themselves in the Christian church and bowing the knee and in humility and finding dignity in helplessness. Men are the helpers. Women are the helpy and the helpers but they don't have a biggest struggle as we do. They can stop and ask for directions. <laughs> we cannot. It is a sign of weakness. 
And so she gets what she needs. Let's work toward finishing up 16 through 27. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms, by the way, that's Jericho, with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zepheth, and they totally destroyed the city, therefore it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its own territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Really, we're going to talk about that. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, seriously, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent the men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. You do catch what just happened there. They just said, hey, if you help us, we'll let you live. So he, they let them live, and then they go and build a city just like the one they just destroyed. Yeah, that was smart. Okay, moving on. He went, he then went to the land of the Hittites, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Eliam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. Let's Romans, Roman numeral number three, real quick, being a wuss. All right, being a wuss or wimping out. Now, the word wuss comes to us from the early 80s. It is slang, and it means weakling. The beginning of all the rest of the failures in the book of Judges, and they are severe. They are awful. They are hideous. Israel will be lower than the pagans. It all starts right here in this kind of 80-20 mentality. We'll do this, we'll do that. We'll give you this, we'll give you that. But we, I, will not ever give you this. Just so you know, you get this, 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 and this, and this. 80%, this 20 you never touching. You don't get it. I don't care. I know you want it. You're not getting it. Sorry. I can be saved and never give you that 20. And you're not getting it, by the way. 
I know, I see you trying all the time. You're always trying to get that total obedience from me where you could just say anything and I'll just go and do it. I'll comply, I'll bow the knee. I'll stop thinking those thoughts. I'll stop seeing those things. I won't go to that place anymore. I won't do that thing anymore. But just so you know, I will never give it to you. 400 years of hell. 400 years of hell. Because they did it almost. But then they said, here's the line, Lord. You don't go over it. <laughs> That's mine. And that's really the problem. Now, what does the verse there say? Uh, they, they say they're unable to, they, they're unable to drive the people out of the plains. Excuse me, what did the Lord tell you to do? Drive them out. Oh, we're unable to drive them out. Okay, so you're telling me that God has given you a command, said that, I've already given them into your hands. I've already told you. I've called you to do something. I've given you the ability to do it. Don't tell me I'm unable to do it with a lame excuse. And this is the reason why I can't comply with what you're asking me to do. Because they have iron chariots. Never tell God you can't obey what he's asked you to do when he supplied the Holy Spirit and the power for you to fully comply. Iron chariots, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. They all have this in the, their Bibles if they would read it. When, verse 1, when you go to war against your enemies and see the horses and the chariots and an army greater and stronger than you, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Don't be faint-hearted or afraid. Don't be terrified and give way and panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. So please, don't make up the excuse of being unable. You are unable because you are unwilling. Chariots weren't a problem back in the Red Sea, were they? You remember this, Exodus 14. God made the wheels of Pharaoh's chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from these Jews. The Lord is fighting for them and against Egypt. God is saying this, I will never let a chariot make a liar out of me. Don't tell him how you grew up and how you were abused and how this and how that and how you are, are physically predispositioned for that kind of sinning. When God says, I need you to comply here, he's given you the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. If you're unable to do that because it's hard, it's no excuse. Can you hear them saying, they have iron chariots. What did you expect? And hear God go, no, iron chariots. What am I going to do? Please, all of our stories, why we can't comply. It just doesn't work. And so moving on, they, verse 21, failed to destroy. 
to dislodge the Jebusites, which of course will bring future ensnarement when we don't dislodge the footholds of the sinful nature. We talked about this on Sunday. Think of the Jebusites as pride, the Hittites as gossip, the Amorites as lust, the Perizzites as envy. And I have a little saying that I made up myself. So I'm bracing you for a laugh. Keep the it, lose the fight. Do you get it? The Canaanite, Parasite, Hittite, and we want those Canaanites around in our hearts. They're the really, spiritually, they are the sinful nature and all our darling pagan sins in our hearts that we are called to conquer. We are called to possess our own mind to take every thought captive and make those thoughts obey Christ, to live by his truth at every inch of your heart. And life is a living sacrifice. But we like the ites. We like them. That's the problem. And he says, don't disable them. You need to completely destroy them. So they fail to dislodge the ites. They lose the fight. And uh, the Bible says to abstain from these sinful desires if we make the spiritual application that the Canaanites are really our sinful desires in our hearts. So I guess it comes down to when it says they failed to dislodge them in verse 27. I guess it comes down to who's more determined. The determination of the Canaanites to remain in the land was greater than the determination of the Israelites to drive them out. Let's finish up now. I'm going to omit many of the names here and places so you can hear what the passage is emphasizing. And I'll call all of the ites and the towns just simply enemies because there's dozens of names. You'll, you'll get lost. All right, here we go. Verse 28 to the end. When Israel became strong, they pressed the enemy into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out their enemies. The enemies continued to live there among them. 30, neither did Zebulun drive out their enemies. Their enemies remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out their enemies. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the enemy inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out their enemies. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among their enemies, and those enemies became forced laborers for them. These enemies confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold on in their strongholds. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. In other words, uh, they were everywhere. All right. Number four, and finally, sparing the enemy. There are seven tribes listed. They all failed to overcome the enemy and let godless nations continue to live in their inheritance and they become their ultimate demise and cause really this perpetual cycle of grief and pain. 
We even have in verse 34, the enemy even bullying Dan into the mountains. They can't come down and enjoy their land. They're pushed around. And I often wonder how many Christians are just bullied and pushed around by their own sinful nature, by spiritual warfare. So here's the foundation. Did you hear over and over again? Failed to overcome them. Failed to remove them. And they, they didn't obey the Lord. So this new generation neglected the word of God, so they didn't realize that they could drive them out, destroy them, reckon them dead, and have God's promises. Now, closing remarks, catch this. Did you see what they did with them? Instead of driving them out and overcoming them, what did they say? You will be our slaves. God wants us to drive you out completely and destroy you and have nothing to do with you, but we are going to uh, enslave you. You're going to work for us. Verses 23 through 25. We'll let you live if you help us. Now picture Canaanite. For us is gossip, maybe. So gossip works for me. That's why I keep it around. I want to know what's going on in your life. That's none of my business. So I gossip. I, whoever we are. We keep the Canaan out. Canaan, instead of killing gossip, we say, uh, you, I'll let you live if you work for me. You see here. So the Amorite of lust. Oh, I'm not going to crucify you. I'll let you live if you work for me, if you give me the gratification that I want when I want it. Oh, I'll let you live. You don't have to die on the cross like the New Testament tells me to crucify those, here's a quote, those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and lusts. It's a quote. Oh no, I'm not going to crucify it. I'm not going to reckon it dead. I'm going to let it work for me. Do you see? The Philistine, greed. Oh, buddy, I don't have to die to you because I could use a Philistine like you rubbing shoulders with me right there because you will serve me to get what I want because I need this. Now I'm going to employ you as my slave. Go and do my work for me because I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to crucify you. And I'm going to drive you from the land. I'm going to let you live in the land if you'll be my slave to get me what I want. The high bite, anger. You can stay if you get even with that guy. And deceit, if you can get me my way. The problem with employing our sinful nature is the wages of sin is death. And it may seem like they are advancing. Look, look at the Jews are saying, look, why kill them when we could use them? Look what they're doing for us. Except they are the ones that compromise Israel for 400 years and they become temple shrine prostitutes. Under every tree you find Jews worshiping the God of Baal, throwing their kids, their kids, Jewish kids, into the fire for Moloch, 
the God of the Canaanites. They're friends who are working for us. Just keep them around. They're okay. They serve a purpose. Closing illustration, I'm reading to you from a, a broadcast, a news broadcast. A Granite City man who was attempting to steal electrical wiring was electrocuted Thursday. According to Madison County officials, the 34-year-old was pronounced dead at 12.40 a.m. Friday. Evidence at the scene indicated that the decedent had contact with charged overhead power lines after they had been cut from the pole, which resulted in electric shock, said the coroner. The materials he was stealing could have been sold for profit. The county's sheriff's department responded to reports that a naked man was screaming for help. It was determined that his clothes had been burned off his body as a result of the electric shocks, and then he died. We sin. We put our sin nature to work for us, hoping to get some kind of gain or profit, gratification. And we like the Canaanites. They serve a purpose for us. The Canaanite of theft and dishonesty and stealing was working for him. Can, I, can you please help me get this thing? The problem is the wages of keeping your Canaanite around is death. And every single time, it will strip you naked. You will be humiliated. You will be embarrassed. You will be shamed, not only in this life, but big time in the life to come. And in the end, you get burned every single time. The happier thought, of course, is to learn and look at Israel and say, there but the grace of God go we, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will drive out those Canaanites. We will not come up with little wuss excuses why I'm this way, why I have to tolerate my Canaanite and my Perizzite and my Hittite. They are not your friends. And he didn't say, cut their thumbs off and cut their big toes off and let them live. He didn't say, disable them. He said, crucify them or you will be crucified by them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Joshua chapter, Judges chapter one. Thank you for the truths that we're learning. The hard truths, Lord, from Israel's dark ages, we thank you. Father, that by your grace and through your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a different experience, but we still have the Canaanites to deal with in our own hearts that have survived conversion and live in each one of our hearts. We pray by the power of the Spirit that as you expose their presence in our own hearts, that you would help us dislodge them and drive them out and crucify them by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might live a life of freedom, and blessing, peace, and enjoy the inheritance you've given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.